precious name. Amen. Pastor. So it's, um, it's, it's my pleasure to be uh, with you guys tonight. Um, I will tell you, I, I uh, had a little bit of a scare before I came up here. I was talking to Faye, and she reminded me uh, how great all these sessions on Sunday nights have been. And I was like, wow, no pre- you could have said that afterwards, right? <laughs> you know. <laughs> but the, I agree. I, I sit there and take notes every Sunday night, and uh, I just think they're great. Can I get can I get uh, one of the deacons to uh, we, or security? <laughs> so um, you know, I, I find it interesting. Um, you know, as we start thinking about, uh, I had a conversation with uh, another member this morning. Start thinking about what's going on with the weather, and I start thinking about, hey, the trees are in bloom. Everything's just sort of popped out over the last couple of weeks, and how exciting all that is. And when I think about that, right, the birds are, your birds are chirping, grass is growing, what I think about is, okay, it's time to get the lawn equipment ready. So, you know, that's, where, that's how my brain works, right? It's time to sharpen the blades, change the oil, check the tires. And I know that I'm going to hear from Penny, do we have to spend money on that lawnmower again? Then we just do this. But it's called preventive maintenance, right? Preventive maintenance. My dad was like, you know, he drilled it in my head. And I heard it one time, I heard it a million times. If you don't take care of the things you have, you'll never have anything nice. And, th- and that's part of uh, sort of my uh, DNA today. And that applies to equipment. It applies to our homes. It applies to vehicles. And I thought about this. You know, it's like um, when you're getting ready to change your air filter in your house and you pull the old one out, and it's like, ah, oh, that doesn't look too bad. Eh, pretty good. Probably go another 30 days. And then you hold the, next, the new one up to it, and it's like, gosh, the old one is really dingy. You didn't realize how dingy it was until you throw the next one up to it. Preventive maintenance and that kind of stuff, it, a prayer, it, it applies to our prayer life, too. Sometimes our prayer life can get a little dingy, right? Sometimes it can get uh, a little off focus. So we have to ask ourselves the, ourselves the questions as we go through like a, a little preventive maintenance in our prayer life. Are we focused on the right things? Are we intentional? Are we truly thankful when our prayers may indicate that we are, right? Are we truly thankful? And maybe our prayers have become a little routine. I want to just make a comment here that tonight this message is for believers. Right? So this is for believers. Because when we start thinking about prayer, right, prayer is communicating with God. Prayer is worship. And if you don't know God, and if you don't know Christ as your Savior, you're not going to worship Him. That's not part of, of who you are or what you do. So we'll talk about that a little bit later on, but I want to keep want you to keep that in mind. And we're going to use the uh, one of the prayers from an Old Testament saint tonight as an example, as a template, right? Is that clean filter to hold up against the, maybe a dirty one? You're going to, we're going to use it as an example of what a healthy prayer looks like, a healthy prayer life looks like. And we're going to see that it reflects the thoughts and attitudes of a spiritually mature believer and what that looks like. And as we look at Hannah's prayer, I want us to look at three key attributes of the prayer. It reflects in the hope of the Savior, or hope in the Savior, hope through the Savior. It demonstrates humility, and it highlights God's sovereignty, those three things. Hope in the Savior, humility, and God's sovereignty. 
if you would, if you stand up, I'm going to read uh, out of 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in Yahweh. My horn is exalted in Yahweh. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies, because I am glad in your salvation. There is no one holy like Yahweh. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Do not multiply speaking so proudly. Let arrogance not come out of your mouth, for Yahweh is a God of knowledge. And with him actions are weighed. The, the, the bows of the mighty are shattered, but those who stumble gird on strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven. But she who has many children languishes. Yahweh puts to death and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. Yahweh makes poor and rich. He brings low and also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He exalts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of glory. For the pillars of the earth are, the, are Yahweh's, and he set the world on them. He keeps the feet of the holy ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. For not by power shall a man prevail. Those who contend with Yahweh will be dismayed. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. Yahweh will render justice to the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king, and he will exalt the horn of his anointed. Then in Elkanah, I always get that wrong, apologize. Elkanah went to his home in Ramah, but the young boy ministered to Yahweh before Eli the priest. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we have come to worship our Lord and King. I pray that you would help us to use this time to grow closer to you, even as we may be in struggles or even failures, Lord. Let us give you the glory for all of our blessings and help us to grow in you and grow in our prayer life. And I pray that that would glorify you and edify the body. In Christ's name, amen. All right. So in order for us to really understand this and, and fully uh appreciate this prayer, we've got to understand Hannah. And, and so you may have uh, an understanding of who Hannah is, maybe going back in your memory banks and saying, okay, well, who, who was Hannah? What did she do? And you know, what, what, is, what does this matter? So I want to go back and just talk about this for a minute. And, and I want to talk about the historical setting of what's going on. So this is going way back into the Old Testament. And we're, Israel's under the Levitical system, right? So there's still the priests and all that stuff still going on. Eli was the high priest. So as I, as I start to throw out these names, I'm hoping some dots are being connected if, you haven't, if you're not very familiar with this, with this account. So Eli was the high priest. Eli had two sons. His sons were evil, right? He, he, they were ungodly men, and they were impacting the spiritual condition of the, na of the nation at the time. These were really bad times at the temple. But God was getting ready to make a really big change. So we have to understand what's going on with, with Hannah's personal situation. So Hannah's married, right? She's got a husband, and her husband loves her. We know that from the previous chapter. He loves her, but he has another wife. So that's, that's a problem, right? That's a problem. Then the problem gets a little deeper because the other wife has children, and God has made Hannah barren, okay? So you can imagine what this is like. So you have this... Scenario. So it's the afternoon, right? And you have this this second wife that's making Hannah miserable. 
You know, all oh, these kids are driving me crazy. You're so lucky. You don't have to deal with all these kids running around here. You know, they're just driving me nuts. She was, she was making her miserable, right? And we know that because, uh, because Hannah was desperate, right? She became desperate. She was so cruel to Hannah that in the previous chapter, Hannah goes in to the temple. And she goes in and she's praying so hard for a child, for a son, that Eli thinks she's drunk. He thinks, she, he thinks she, she's drunk. And that sort of sets the tone, right? Because Eli has no clue as to what's going on. He has no idea what's going on. But God knows exactly what's going on. God knows exactly what's getting ready to happen. The Lord blessed her prayer. Hannah conceived Samuel, right? So now Samuel, that rings, that rings a bell. We're talking about the, the early part of, um, uh, of Israel here. Hannah conceives uh, Samuel, and then we're going to fast forward about three years to where we're at, okay? She's weaning him off. She's, she's spent three years with, with, with Samuel, and she's now dropping him off at the temple. That's where we're at in this prayer. She's dropping him off. <coughs> so the one thing that Hannah wanted in this world, the one thing that she wanted was a son, and now she's going to fulfill her promise to the Lord and drop him off for service to the Lord. So you have to ask yourself, how does that even happen? How does somebody even do that, right? How could Hannah hand over her son to Eli and his disobedient sons? Her prayer tells us exactly how that happens. In verses 1 and 2, we see Hannah's hope in the Savior. Hope in the Savior. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in Yahweh. My horn is exalted in Yahweh. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I am glad in your salvation. There is no one holy like Yahweh. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. So the first two verses of this set the tone for everything else. They set the tone for the, for the entire rest of the prayer because she starts off making it very very personal. Her heart exalts in Yahweh. This isn't, this isn't head knowledge for her. This is her whole being. My horn, my strength comes from him. He gives me boldness. How does he give her boldness? Because I'm glad in your salvation. I rejoice in your salvation. I have hope in Yahweh. That's what she's saying here. All Hannah's hope and her only source of hope is from the Lord. So why does Hannah put her hope in Yahweh? Because, as she tells us, he's exclusively God. There's none like him. There is no other. In verse 2, she makes it clear that Yahweh is holy. He's different. He's special. He's set apart. He's the rock. She's focused on Yahweh. We have to think about what she wasn't focused on, right? She wasn't focused on her past. She wasn't focused on her struggles. She clearly let all that go. She was completely focused on her Savior. Paul reminds us we need to do the same thing. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. As new creations, we have hope in what Christ has already done. As we see Hannah's hope, the world should see our hope. The world should see us focus on the only one that has the power to save. Again, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. We see this in Hannah. She's rejoicing. She's thankful. And she's confident in her God. But do we see it in ourselves? Does our prayer life reflect these things? Are our, prayer life, are our prayers focused on the Savior and based in confidence and thanksgiving? And do our prayers reflect the hope that we have in the one that saved us? So we've seen Hannah's hope in the Savior. Now let's look at how her prayer demonstrates humility. In verses 3 and 5, Hannah shifts her focus from her personal experience to general warnings. And these general warnings are about pride and arrogance. Because when we're arrogant, we have confidence in ourselves. And when we're prideful, we say, look what I did. Look what I did, right? And what we should be saying is, look what the Savior has done. Verse 3 says, Do not multiply speaking so proudly. Let, uh, let arrogance not come out of your mouth, for Yahweh is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. Hannah's referencing how we should be humble in our speech. Don't speak proudly. Don't be arrogant with your speech. Psalm, uh, Psalms 19, 14, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. Our speech is a really good indicator of what's going on in our hearts. Because we cannot have an attitude of arrogance and, and, and I'll at the same time have an attitude that pleases God. Those two things don't go together. Verse 4, The bows of the mighty are shattered, but those who stumble gird on strength. We should have confidence, but not in ourselves. It must be founded in God's power and in His authority. He has the authority to humble those that rely on their own strength. And He does. He does humble those that rely on their own strength. We'll see that. You see that in the next chapter with, uh, with what He does with, e with uh, Eli and his sons. Verse 5, Those who were full, hired themselves out for bread. But those who were hungry ceased to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes. We have to ask ourselves, what are we hungry for? What are we hungry for as Christians? Are we hungry for the things of the world? What are we praying for? What are we thinking about? Where do we spend our time? Where do we spend our energy? Where do we spend our focus? All those things reveal our priorities. Hannah's saying, I was ready to give up, and the Lord gave me strength. I was barren, and the Lord made me fruitful. I was poor, and my Lord made me rich in His blessings. 
What we're getting here from Hannah is a sense of complete dependence. Complete dependence on the Lord here. Hannah knew she didn't do it, right? Because she couldn't do it. She didn't do anything because she couldn't do anything. Jesus tells us in John 15 that we can do nothing of eternal value without him. John 15, 4 through 5, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit from itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Society tells us, you're special. You don't need this stuff. You can do it on your own. Jesus is telling us here, he's looking for humble people. He's looking for humble servants. So we saw Hannah's hope and her, humil and her humility. Now let's see how she highlights God's sovereignty in verses 6 through 10. Verse 6, Yahweh puts to death and makes alive. He brings down Sheol and raises up. So she, she's giving God all the authority here. He's, got, he, he's the author of creation. He has the power of life and he has the power of death and he has power over the living and he has power over the dead. In verse 7, Yahweh makes rich and, or poor and rich. He brings low and, and also exalts. Yahweh has the authority to establish power, positions of power. And he also has the authority to remove that power. You know, we see that all throughout the Old Testament. So we don't have, we're not in this, we're in this account, uh, we're not in the period of kings yet. But we know that there are a lot more bad kings than there were good kings in the Old Testament. But we also know that none of those kings were established outside of God's sovereign authority. Verse 8, he raises the poor from the dust. He exalts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of glory for the pillars of the earth are Yahweh's and he set the world on them. This is us. We were the spiritually needy. We were the spiritually dead. And he exalted us with his mercy and his grace to inherit a seat of, of, of glory. In 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and unfading, having been kept in heaven for you, who are, who are protected by the power of God through the faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Aren't you glad? If we're to understand at all how Hannah had hope in a Savior and was humble in her confidence, we've got to understand that Hannah saw that God was in control and sovereign over everything. In verse 9, he keeps the feet of his holy ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. For not by the power shall a man prevail. In this verse, Hannah's focus on God is the protector. The protector. He keeps the feet of his holy ones. He guards them. 
We can't lose sight of the context here. Hannah is dropping off her three-year-old boy. She's, she's dropping him off. This is the son she pleaded for. She pleaded for, for, this, for this child. And she was dropping him off to Samuel and his two evil sons. She was dropping off her little boy to a priest that couldn't even raise his own sons right. But Hannah wasn't entrusting Samuel to Eli and his sons. Hannah was entrusting Samuel to Yahweh because Yahweh is the protector. He's the one with all the authority. He's the one with all the power. And she knew that Yahweh was going to guard Samuel's little feet. There was no doubt about it. In verse 10, those who contend with Yahweh will be dismayed against them. He will thunder in the heavens. Yahweh will render justice to the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king, and he will exalt the horn of his anointed. He has all the authority. He has the authority over life and death, and he has the power to judge. Yahweh is going to re render justice to the ends of the earth. In this verse, Hannah references the king. Who is this king? There is no king of Israel yet, right? Remember, we're, we're before the kings of Israel. What we see here, here is Hannah's referencing the true king. She's referencing the strength of the only true king, the only one with the authority to judge. Jesus Christ is the anointed one. He's the only one with the authority to judge. His strength will be exalted before the whole world. And we see this, Hannah's making this reference to the coming Messiah over a thousand years before Jesus' earthly ministry. She was looking forward to him coming. She has confidence that Yahweh could do it and that he would do it. He could do it and that he would do it. We should have the same confidence. We should be forward-looking, right? We're, doing, we're going through the end-time studies. Are we looking forward to eternity? Are we so focused on this week and this year? Hannah shows us that that's not, that's not the way. In verse 11, we see the result. Then Elkanah went to his home at Ramah, but the young boy ministered to, to Yahweh before Eli the priest. She drops him off. And we see, uh, as you go through the, the history of, of the church, we see a tremendous change in what God is going to do with Samuel. I would, I would encourage all of us to examine our prayer lives. Hannah wasn't focused on herself. She wasn't focused on what she wanted. She had put her hope in a God that saves, and she came to him in humility. But she was completely confident in his complete authority and sovereignty over everything. We aren't Hannah, though, right? We're not Hannah. We don't have the same challenges as Hannah. We're not in the same situation as Hannah. But we do have our own challenges. And we do have our own blessings. 
we do have the opportunity in a way to respond in a way that pleases God. We have been pulled from death, elevated and given hope by a loving and powerful God. And our prayers should absolutely reflect that. Hebrews 10, 19-23 Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now I started this, this, uh, this uh, sermon tonight talking about this message being for believers. Before I was a Christian, I prayed. But those prayers were self-centered and they certainly were not God-honoring. They weren't effective because there was a barrier between me and God. And that barrier was my sin. And you might be in the same situation. You might be separated from God right now. I can tell you Jesus is the only one that can break that barrier. He came from heaven to live a sinless life and went on that cross to take on the sins of the world and he intercedes for those that are his. For those that repent, put their faith and trust in him. If you have questions about what a prayer life should look like, obviously we're going to have some conversation tonight. But if you have questions about how to break through that barrier, what that needs to look like in your life, then please, one of the deacons, one of the elders, one of the pastors, will be here tonight and have a conversation if, if, uh, if you need to do that. Pastor?